I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA host Bill Bukowski to talk about one of classical music's biggest genres, the symphony. From the city of Mannheim, rockets and elements of jazz, we explore its origins and its development through Beethoven. Bill, could there possibly be a more iconic symphony opening than this? I think it's one of those things where you can say, yeah, I can name that tune in three notes or less. Or even one note. Right. And for a lot of people who don't even know what a symphony is or can name any, most of us have heard that. And there's been many, many different kinds of versions of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, which is what we just heard the opening to. Some interesting ones. I think you might like this one. definitely a metal version. A metal version of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but from also from another symphony that people want, might not realize is also from a symphony, but equally as famous, if not more than the opening to Beethoven's Fifth, is this. Yeah, the Alpha and the Omega of Beethoven, you could right. say. And it's uh, at this point when you're seeing something in slow-mo on a commercial or as a food fight or something, it's used in all kinds of things. But that being a big section from Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9, the choral symphony as it's sometimes called. So I guess in the realm of classical music, why should we care or, or really understand what a symphony is? Well, symphony essentially means sounding together. That's what the root of it is. And what happened was, is from its humble beginnings, it eventually emerged to be a way of expressing in the grandest sense with the greatest palette available to you in terms of musicians and orchestras and instruments, a big statement in music. And as time went on, and Beethoven, of course, was, I think, the the one that sort of changed it all, those statements became grander and more personal. It's, for a lot of composers, kind of like the pinnacle of their output, especially later in their career. Everything that they've developed and done gets put into some of these really big symphonies. Right, exactly. It's a very personal expression. It's a way of working out a musical problem. It's another thing, too. And saying things without words. Of course, Beethoven changed that, and you can now add words to symphonies. But it's, uh, it, it does, it, it's become a very personal expression and a grand expression, too. And to get to this grand expression of Beethoven, we have to go way back in time to the Baroque period into the late part of the 17th century into the 18th century where symphonies were not this big standalone work with um, a full symphony orchestra. Rather, they were a very small part of, say, an opera or a cantata, a work with voice and orchestra, where the symphony, or symphonia as it might be called, was five, maybe just ten minutes long. Yeah, exactly. It was something of an afterthought. Um, it was an overture, for example, like an overture, as you said, to an opera or a production or something like that. It was a way of basically telling the people to settle down because the show's about to begin and you know, for the orchestra to sort of play and vamp and everything. And as you said, only about five minutes long or so, and that's sort of where it began, or as a way of sort of setting the scene. Like, there's a wonderful symphonia in Bach's Christmas Oratorio in, in the beginning of uh, the second cantata in the Christmas Oratorio, and Bach used uh, symphonias for a lot of his uh, 
Uh, sacred cantatas is a way of introducing a scene or a feeling. At this point, they're very short, but also in three movements, a fast section, a slow section, and then another fast section. So we can listen to some early examples of this symphony, symphonia idea with Vivaldi's opera Fornace. Here would be the first fast section of this symphonia from Vivaldi's opera Fornace. Already very different sounding than the Beethoven. Right, and exciting too, because it's also an attention grabber in the same way that Beethoven is. The way that this, it's it's a very uh, propulsive, forward, exciting thing. So it, it definitely, in the same thing, grabs listeners' attention, telling them, "Okay, settle down. The show's about to begin." And then it goes to a slow section like this. Makes you want to ponder. Right. In many ways, too, it also prefigures what you're going to be seeing in the drama that's about to unfold. Right. A lot of times the overture will include themes, not always in the old days, but it would include themes that would be presented at different important sections of the opera to, to come. And as you can hear from this to the Beethoven we listen to, it's a much different uh, setup of an orchestra. At this time, there weren't big orchestras like the National Symphony Orchestra or the Berlin Philharmonic, where you had all these winds and brass and strings and percussion and other things like that. It was rather pared down. In fact, some of when they were writing this out, there would only be a couple of parts, and the people that were available to play would play. So for that Vivaldi, there's first and second violin and then a viola part, which, you know, they can kind of change in and out how that's played. But there's also what we call a basso continuo as well. So in this music, when you look at the actual printed music, uh, which I have here, when you look at the bottom line, so when you hear that harpsichord, that keyboard instrument playing all these notes and everything, that's not written in the music. What's actually written is just a couple of notes and then figures like numbers and different symbols like flats and sharps that looks completely foreign to most people, but to these musicians back then, they can look at it and improvise on it. So this basso continual part could be played by harpsichord and then with a cello and also a bassoon. And you can also think of it, I think the best way to kind of think about it is as a rhythm section in, in jazz. Right, right. It's meant to support and guide and, pr- and move things forward, but to be also unobtrusive. So we get to this time of these short symphonies being part of operas, cantatas, oratorios, and they're setting the mood and the, th- and the theme, but they're not quite standalone works yet. Right. But things change as we get into what we can call the classical period going from the 1600s, 1700s into the mid-1750s. And with that, there is a thing called the Mannheim School. And the Mannheim School being actually a Mannheim court orchestra in Mannheim in Germany at the time where there were musicians Um, like in an orchestra, and composers in residence that would play for the royalty, right? Because there weren't really public concerts at this point. Yeah, it was um, the palace there was the elector of of Mannheim as he became. He was, I think, from Heidelberg and he moved to Mannheim, I think. And like a lot of aristocrats and uh, governing officials, they had grand palaces and 
In this case, this particular elector could afford a big orchestra. Now, when you have a big orchestra and you've got lots of, you know, one ads out there, musicians come from all over and they realize, hey, this is a really great place to play. These people are really, really good. The musicians are wonderful. And word gets out uh, like it would in, um, say, uh, any kind of musical hotbed that you might want to think of from contemporary times. New Orleans is a good example. Or right. Detroit during uh, Motown or uh, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. So many musicians went down there. Nashville. Uh, to this day, Nashville is a place where musicians go. Uh, where they can uh, work. Well, this was Mannheim, and reputation got out, and people came from all over, including uh, folks we know today, Haydn, Mozart. And calling What's it... interesting about that, too, is that most of the composers who worked in Mannheim aren't as well-known today, but their musical example sort of set the pattern for the future. Exactly. So in Mannheim, or as we call it, the, the Mannheim School, they have this orchestra, and they start to, well... Why don't we write these symphonies and bigger works standalone, um, performing them on their own? And Johann Stamitz was a big uh, composer and leader in Mannheim with the um, orchestra. And they decided, well, we've got all these musicians. We don't need to write a few parts and then whoever's available plays it. Right. Let's write for all the instruments right. we have. Right, and give them something interesting to do. Right. And Basso Continuo, let's forget about that. Let's write everything out. And with that... They started to add a lot of stylization, like you said also, thinking of New Orleans or Detroit, all those styles that grew out of those areas. Here, we have actual names for certain things that start to get put into symphonies, like the Mannheim Crescendo, the Mannheim Roller, uh, the Mannheim, this is my favorite, the Mannheim Rocket, right, and the Mannheim Psy. So what are these things? The Mannheim Crescendo was basically having the orchestra start very, very soft, and then over time get loud. A crescendo was going from soft to loud over a, a certain amount of time. And in the Baroque period, there was contrast, but it was often heavy contrast, loud, soft, loud, soft. And here, starting a symphony on its own with this crescendo was, was something new. And it actually happens in Haydn's first symphony. The whole orchestra going from soft to loud. Right. Now, another one is the Mannheim Roller, which is another technique that involves a repeated like bass sound or cellos. So an ostinato pattern often just da, 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 da. and then a melody over top um, getting louder and louder or, or higher and higher. And it's actually in Johann Stamitz, kind of the founder of all this. It's in his Symphony Number no. 1. That repeated bass line and everyone getting higher and higher and louder and louder uh, with that melody. Now, this one is my favorite, the Mannheim Rocket. And that is going from uh, quickly from a low note to a high note, often in arpeggio, kind of outlining a chord. Like a firecracker rocket going up. And I had to think for a second when I'm when I was thinking about all this stuff, oh, Mannheim Rocket, right, a rocket, you know, you're launching exactly. into space. But then I thought, wait a second. Elon Musk and NASA wasn't around in the in the 1700s, but the rocket. But rockets were. It was a it was a military thing, as you know, fireworks. Right, going right. back to like over a thousand years ago in China, mm -hmm. which is um, 
That's a pretty interesting. Yeah. And so what does a rocket do? The rocket goes up, it climbs, and then it bursts. And you can hear that in Mozart's Symphony Number no. 40. But it's also interesting that this doesn't just go into symphonies and all kinds of music that these ideas are, are going into. And now once you hear it, you're always going to think, oh, it's the Mannheim rocket, the Mannheim uh, roller. Uh, another example is the Mannheim sigh. Yeah, tell me about that one. So that is when you have two notes and there is a slur between both of them, a slur meaning you don't rearticulate or start the next note over again. So instead of da, da, it'd be da. But in this sigh, the first note gets a lot of emphasis. Da, da. And it comes from the the Baroque period, but really emphasized here in uh, this way. And again, Johann Stamitz in his third symphony, you can hear this. So the first movement in the symphony is often the biggest movement establishing the main themes and ideas that you'll hear. And Bill, is this also where, from what you mentioned before, where there would be a kind of musical problem the composer would work through? Well, that's one way of looking at it. Uh, a composer has an idea. He wants to get from point A to point B or an experiment. You know, how do I resolve this? Or where can I take this great tune that I have in my head? And the first movement is a little bit like working that out. What are the possibilities, you know? Uh, arranging or rearranging the tune, shifting it, putting it into a minor key or a major key, depending on where you're starting. That's pretty much what the what the first movement is doing. It's playing around with the different themes that he's trying to put together. Okay. And going into the second movement, at this time especially, it is it is a slow movement, and it's meditative. It provides a lot of contrast. It can be meditative, but also kind of intense as well. Right, and this gets back to what we were talking about originally, the, uh, um, the sinfonia or the overture, the fast, slow, fast. Here's the slow, and as you said, contrast. Sometimes it can be in a different key signature or a different tempo. It is a chance for the composer to be just a little bit more expressive in what he's uh, in the music that he's trying to share. And Mozart is very expressive in this slow movement, which comes from his 33rd symphony. Much more delicate sound, much more delicate texture, right? It's. I was about to say delicate as well. It's. It's delicate and it's slow, but it's going somewhere. Exactly, because you want to keep the forward momentum going. You just want to slow things down and, and be a little more meditative. And going from the slow movement, that second movement, into the third movement, up until this point, the third movement was fast and it was the final movement of the symphony. But here also in Mannheim, they add an additional movement here. It's actually a minuet. I think this, too, is a reminder that sometimes music moves you to the point where you want to get up and dance. So what better way to do it than, uh, you know, show off your footwork in a minuet, which was all the rage at the time. A kind of light, easy dance in three. Exactly. And we can listen to that in an early example of one of Haydn's symphonies, Symphony Number no. 7. ¶¶ 
By the way, that's also a very Austrian sounding, almost like a folk dance, like a stomping Lendler or something like that in three-quarter time. Okay. It does make you want to move and Makes you want to get up and makes you want to hit the floor. And this third movement going into the fourth movement, which is now the final fast movement of the symphony. It is kind of exciting and it's heart pumping and everything. And it is very, it really brings everything together and resolves the whole symphony. Many times what you're going to see in the final movement is a repetition or rephrasing of some of the themes you heard in the first movement or taking that theme or themes from the first movement and completely changing it into something even more profound or even more energetic or more exciting. Like, I guess from what I'm hearing, it's the um, like the ultimate solution to what's presented in the opening of the symphony. Right. You have the, the weighty opening part. You've got the slow contemplative movement. You've got the sort of witty dance movement in the finale. You want to finish with a... You want to finish strongly with a big, strong finish. And there's a very big, strong finale finish in the final symphony of Haydn, number 104. Now, where does the symphony go from here? We have all these developments that give us more variety and composers start putting out more symphonies and by the dozen, even a hundred. Haydn wrote over a hundred symphonies, 104, Mozart writing 41, Playel also writing uh, 41 as well. And now concerts are more accessible, right? The public is now able to see these concerts. Well, that's another something to add to what you just said is, you know, Haydn wrote 104 symphonies. And one of the reasons why Haydn was that prolific Oh, and Mozart, to a certain extent, is they had good publishing contacts. Right. You know, this got the symphonies out there. They might not necessarily, publishing and copyright laws weren't like they are today. Uh, they may not have had the rights to them, but the symphonies could be performed and then published in manuscript and then could be uh, distributed and performed elsewhere. And uh, Haydn, for a lot of his career, writing for um, Esterhazy, Prince Esterhazy, uh, writing a lot of symphonies. But the public getting obsessed with these things, especially in London, his final 12 symphonies, which were played in London, um, the public um, always waiting for the next Haydn symphony or even a student, Joseph Playel. Right. What happened was Haydn was working seemingly in obscurity. He wasn't allowed out. He had so many duties to perform with the Esterhazys. But the Esterhazys being aristocrats, they had guests coming in for uh, a dinner and a meal and a concert and a performance and were got out about this spectacular composer that they had working for them. And so Haydn's name was getting out and his works were getting published too. So by the time he was sort of semi-retired, um, he was a big, he was a very well-known property and he had commissions from Paris, the six Paris symphonies, and as you mentioned, the London symphonies too. Now, he wrote 104 symphonies. That is a lot. Beethoven wrote nine. So a lot of the Haydn ones, they can all kind of run into each other. I think they can. It's hard to sometimes discern, well, which one are you listening to out of the 104? So public started giving these symphonies nicknames. And I think one example that is heard a lot is the surprise symphony number 94 at this time. Haydn is adding a lot of gimmicks and ideas and jokes sometimes into symphonies. His surprise one, actually, if you don't know, I'm just going to play a little bit of it for you. This is what is the surprise in his surprise symphony. 
Now, at the time, no one's expecting that. Exactly. Definitely gets your attention. It was Haydn's way of, uh, because again, concert uh, demeanor back then wasn't like it is today where everybody's really quiet. You know, people would be talking amongst themselves or eating or whatever. And it was a way for him to draw their attention back to the music. And people just loved it. It's it's still surprising. Sometimes if I'm not, if I'm not paying attention when I'm playing this, it'll catch me off guard because no one's expecting that huge And explosion. a really good performance will do that. Yeah. There's, there's another one in the – I could go for hundreds of examples, but here's two. There's one in the Symphony Number no. 93 where there's this bassoon sound that just takes you by surprise and it sounds hysterical, almost like, uh, like somebody always just said – just blew a, a, a horn note wrong. Right. But it's on purpose. Or the drum roll symphony. The beginning of it. And the interesting thing is there aren't any notes for the uh, drummer. It's just play something here. Right. Really, when it, com- when it comes right down to it. So each performance can be just a little different. So it, that's a, a lot of what's happening in this period. A lot of symphonies, some of them kind of run together, but there's some fun, interesting things happening, especially... A lot with... of inventiveness, too. Yeah. And I think... At this point, symphonies are still more lighthearted than they would get to in the um, 1800s. But just to even listen to the development of one composer like Mozart from his first symphony to his last. Here is the opening of his first symphony. Mozart was eight years old when he wrote that, but now listening to how he developed all the way to his final symphony number 41. We have more winds, we have some brass, we have timpani, more. There's just a lot more happening there. Right. Bigger orchestra, more musicians, um, a much bigger canvas to play with. And what helps the symphony develop more is that instrument technology gets better. These instruments are made better, especially winds and uh, brass. That's kind of going into later. But um, these instruments were pretty hard to play back then. They're hard now. But back then, to make a nice sound, you really had to work um, pretty hard. So we've gone from the Baroque period to now where the public is really enjoying a lot of these symphonies, Mozart, Haydn, and Pleil, some uh, big ones. Coming up next, a composer who changed all of this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. So now we get to a composer who changed everything or started to change everything, and that was Beethoven. Yeah, Beethoven was coming solidly based in the tradition of Mozart and Haydn. Uh, He loved Mozart's music too. And Beethoven was, he was a singularity. He was one of these people that come along in history for very specific reason, but there was never anybody like him before and certainly no one like him since. And he completely changed the whole game. Well, as you kind of said, um, 
he loved Mozart, and he followed with his first symphony the form of what Haydn and Mozart had developed for him, this four-movement symphony. But His I think, first and second symphonies, really, both were very much along those lines. But even then, he was being inventive. He was being daring. What I think is really daring is the opening of his symphony number one. And that is, it poses this question and answer kind of between the, the winds. The first chord, if you just listen to it by itself, for instance, that's the first chord. Kind of unstable, right? It's unstable and it you know it needs to go somewhere. It needs to resolve, yeah. So here is the whole opening of that for Beethoven's first symphony. Yeah, it's looking for a tonal center, as they say. It's looking for a home. It's looking for home plate. <laughs> right. And this is just a few years after um, Haydn's last symphony in 1794. This is now 1801 uh, with Beethoven and his very first symphony, also his second one as well. But things changed with his third symphony, right? The third symphony was a game changer. That was pivotal. It really was. The Eroica Symphony broke the mold and said that almost anything was possible. And with these symphonies getting into their sonata form where they start with usually a nice, soft, um, leisurely introduction, even if it's kind of questioning, as we heard in that just in that example, Beethoven gets rid of that completely in his third symphony. He plays two huge E-flat major chords, and then we're right off. Yeah, it's a one-two punch. And Beethoven, with his Fifth Symphony, where we actually opened the whole uh, this whole episode with, is still, to me, one of the most phenomenal things to um, listen to. And this is only a few years later in uh, finishing in 1805, I think, his Fifth Symphony with that's become one of the most iconic examples of a symphony. And one thing that he's adding a lot of that some other composers weren't before him and using them in different ways, and that is the horns. Uh, the horns shine brilliantly, especially in the finale of his fifth symphony. Now, I can tell you, being a musician, of course, I've played, you know, just tons and tons of symphonies and concerts. And all of my friends and colleagues as well, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is something special for for everyone. Now, what about a Sixth Symphony, the Pastoral Symphony? That's a different uh, kettle of fish, so to speak. That's um, Beethoven doing some scene painting. It's a much more relaxed affair, at least from the outset, than the Symphony Number no. Five. But it definitely takes you into different places. So the first movement. Awakening upon um, happy feelings in the countryside. So what uh, Beethoven is doing here is he adds there's there's some titles to these movements. Well, now there's five movements, right? We don't have four anymore. Now we have five uh, in this instance. And they each have titles and they do kind of they paint a scene. And once you hear them, it makes total sense. Right. The, the, The very beginning of that symphony is a perfect example because it starts off with what like a drone, like Piper's playing in the country. 
And right away, you know you're not in the city anymore. And it's happy feelings in the countryside. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's not all fun and games and happiness in this symphony. There's also a, a movement of a storm that is terrifying sounding. Yeah, I like to think that uh, Beethoven, who liked to take long walks in the Vienna countryside or the countryside outside of Vienna to clear his head and to get inspiration. But like most people that go out walking in the countryside, I'm sure he got caught in his fair of uh, rainstorms and downpours. And that's a storm I do not want to get caught in <laughs> with Beethoven. And the the parts are, as he's kind of saying, giving the musician something interesting to do. Beethoven does that almost in a terrifying way. The, the basis, what they play in that movement is... Um, uh, to me, borderline seems impossible to play. Well, but, you could imagine what the musicians at the time thought, too. Especially. Because yeah. um, now it's a standard excerpt for an audition. Back then it was, oh, what's this? What in the world is going on here? Right. So Beethoven... Obviously, this huge figure in the symphony and changed the game forever, especially with his Ninth Symphony, which was towards the end of his life, uh, finishing it in 1824. Let's listen to the opening of this symphony real quick. Was that a Mannheim crescendo? I think so. It, it, the influence is still there. I'm mean, still there to, to this day how we play things. But the Ninth Symphony, extraordinarily transformative. We don't just have musicians on stage anymore. We have the chorus. Right. And that's it's, it, if you listen to the work, it seems inevitable. At the time, it didn't. But the work sort of begins and has, like any symphony, it has to resolve itself. If you think of a symphony as posing a problem and then solving it, hypothesis, solution, what was the solution at the end of this symphony? And you can hear him at the end of the symphony discarding themes from the three previous movements. And then eventually the chorus kicks in, stops everything, and takes it in a completely different direction. And the chorus doesn't come in until the final movement. And it starts with one singer. And what's he saying there? Basically saying, oh, friends, not these sounds. There's something better we can do. Exactly. And then it gets to the section that we've now everyone knows about, that Ode to Joy section. (laughs) 
And I think Beethoven would be okay that today his music is still used in the concert hall, but also in commercials and in movies. His music is still um, used everywhere. Well, and this is the thing, too. You can trace this back even to his third symphony, the Eroica. Um, Beethoven's whole point, and he he put a, an exclamation point on it in his ninth symphony, is that music is for everyone, not just the aristocrats. And Beethoven had his problems uh, with uh, the high and mighty. But his whole point was music is for the common people. He makes that point at the end of his third symphony, and he makes that point at the end of all of his symphonies to a certain extent. The sixth symphony certainly celebrates the, the common people. And in, in the ninth, it's the same thing. It's music. We're all brothers, universal brotherhood. That's the point that he's making. And I think, yeah, I think he'd He'd be pleased and surprised and I think gratified to hear his music being so well-known about among most people today. Beethoven's Symphony No. 9 in 1824. It's over an hour long, a hundred and something years earlier. A symphony was five or ten minutes long and pretty simple in comparison. So it's been quite a development up to this point, And in a future episode, we'll talk about what happens to the symphony after Beethoven. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on the symphony, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. You can also send us an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. Classical Breakdown.